You may not be surprised to hear this. I generally don't pay attention to NASCAR. But my ears perked up recently when I heard this on NPR. Rain disrupted a NASCAR playoff race on Monday, but it did not dampen the celebration of Bubba Wallace when he was declared the winner of the NASCAR Cup Series. No way! Yes! No way! Yes! Yes! Bubba Wallace became only the second black driver to win at NASCAR's top level following Wendell Scott in 1963. Bubba Wallace first entered my consciousness in 2020. Like other non-NASCAR fans, I learned his name when he publicly urged the organization to ban the display of Confederate flags at their events. When Wallace told NASCAR to, quote, get them out of here, he was inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. And to my surprise, NASCAR responded within days by prohibiting the Confederate flag at their events. Saying it runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment. Within weeks, Bubba Wallace was back in the news. And again, people like me were paying attention. But this time, the news was nothing to be celebrated. The morning before a race at Talladega, Wallace's crew discovered a noose in their garage. He viewed it as a threat, and NASCAR and the FBI agreed, both launching investigations into the incident. Wallace's experience had just become the latest and most public example of a disturbing American tradition. During the Jim Crow era, nooses were the most prominent tool associated with the thousands of lynchings that took place across the United States. And they've continued to be used as threats of violence, many times when African Americans have been seen as invading white spaces, and in response to moments when movements for black equality have gained ground. The Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist organizations often brandished nooses in public and regularly left them as warnings at people's homes and places of work. When James Meredith integrated the University of Mississippi in 1962, a student at Mississippi State displayed a life-size black doll hung from a noose in protest. The practice didn't end with the civil rights movement. Even again in 2015, a student at the University of Mississippi tied a noose around the neck of a statue of James Meredith. And in 2016, another Ole Miss student did the same thing. In 2017, bananas were found hanging from nooses when a black woman was elected student government president at American University. That same year, Florida's first African-American state attorney received a noose in the mail with the message, she should pick cotton for the rest of her life and be whipped. Multiple nooses have been found at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture since it opened in 2016. And of course, this is only a partial list. In the case of Bubba Wallace, the FBI eventually determined that the incident was not a hate crime. The noose had been seen in the garage at Talladega before it was assigned to Wallace. But this is not the point. Wallace experienced the noose as a warning. And as a black man, in the very white space of NASCAR, viewing the noose as an explicit threat of racial violence was based on a long historical record. Some Americans would like to forget Jim Crow and the thousands of black people brutally murdered at the hands of mobs. But as William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. The continued use of a noose as a racist threat shows us that. We live in the world that lynching helped to make, and we need to reckon with its legacy in the classroom and in our public culture. I'm Bethany J. 
and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. This episode contains graphic descriptions of racial violence. We know that talking about the realities of the Jim Crow era can be emotional and complex. This podcast is a resource for navigating those challenges, and we will discuss strategies for sharing this difficult content with your students. Black Americans during Jim Crow were deeply affected by the ever-present threat of lynching and other forms of racial violence. Kadada Williams collected accounts of those experiences in her book, They Left Great Marks on Me. In this episode, she examines the role that extra-legal violence played in enforcing the racist codes of Jim Crow. Then, Kelly Carter Jackson will discuss how Black Americans fought for justice during this era, while public institutions stood idly by. Here's my co-host, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and his conversation with historian Kadada Williams. I'm so glad you can join us. Let's get started. One of the themes that we have been covering in this season of Teaching Hard History is racial violence during the Jim Crow era. And certainly when you talk about racial violence and racial terrorism during Jim Crow, you have to talk about lynching, which is why I'm so glad to welcome to the podcast Dr. Kadada Williams to help us unpack the history of lynching and how to teach it accurately and effectively in the classroom. Kadada, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me and for covering this topic. I'm glad to be here. What was lynching? Lynching was a form of extra-legal killing that happened primarily in the southern states to African Americans from the Civil War to about the Second World War. Lynching takes on a variety of forms. They can be individual killings of Black people by one individual. They can be small gangs who participate in the killing of an African-American who's resisting subjugation. And they can also take the form of full-scale mobs and massacres that kill large numbers of Black people in communities during this time. So the practice is quite diverse over the entire history of its occurrence. And what was its relationship to Jim Crow? Lynching and other forms of violence were the power behind Jim Crow. And what we mean by that is for African-Americans who resisted segregation and disfranchisement, they knew the possibility that they or anyone in their family could be lynched. So did lynchings only occur in the South? They did not. There were a good number of lynchings in the Midwest, and in the larger heartland. States like Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Kansas, Oklahoma, all had decent numbers of lynchings. There are hardly any lynchers who are prosecuted in the southern states. 
in some of the Midwestern and heartland states, there are some efforts to sometimes prosecute, but most of the people get away with what they've done. So how do we how do we generally know about lynchings? I think one of the easiest ways that we gain access to the history of lynching is the extensive documentation of it in newspapers across the country. So lynching is not a secret in America. It's published quite widely. Sometimes the killings are even advertised in the newspaper in advance. I want to share with our listeners an article that appeared in the Sacramento Union on May 19th, 1922, that describes uh, in pretty graphic detail the lynching of a young African-American boy. The title of the article is Negro 15 is burned at stake. It reads Davisboro, Georgia, May 18. Charles Atkins, a Negro, 15, one of four taken into custody today in connection with the killing of Mrs. Elizabeth Kitchens, 20 years old, was burned at the stake tonight. The lynching occurred at the scene of the murder and followed an alleged confession from the prisoner. He was tortured over a slow fire for 15 minutes and then shrieking with pain was questioned concerning his accomplices. Members of the mob comprising nearly 2,000 people then raised the body again, fastened it to a pine tree with trace chains and relighted the fire. More than 200 shots were fired into the charred body following the boy's death. We have been stressing, Kedato, to our listeners That one of the best ways to teach about the Jim Crow era is to use primary sources. And one of the sources that people use all the time are newspapers uh, and newspaper articles, just like the one I read from the Sacramento Union. But if we only use that in this instance, for example, are we getting the full story? Is there more to this incident than is reported in this story? There's so much more to the story, and you're never getting the full story of a lynching from a newspaper, especially one that is reporting so far away from the crime. African Americans who experienced this violence documented it, and they did what they could to try to get justice afterwards. And when we look for sources like that for the killing of Charles Atkins, we actually find records from members of his family. And I have letters his father wrote to the NAACP. I'll read the first one. June 20th, 1926. I am looking around for a good lawyer to bring suit against the state of Georgia for the lynching of my son at the age of 13 years old on the year 1922, 18th day of May. I am getting old and miss the support of my family and feel that the state should help me bury this burden. I wish to have a favorable answer soon. Respectfully yours, Gaynor Atkins. Members of the NAACP write back to Gaynor, and then we have his follow-up letter. July 16, 1926. 
Dear Sirs, I wrote you some time ago concerning what happened to me. Now I will tell you the facts in this case to the very best of my knowledge. In May 1922, in Washington County, state of Georgia, my boy was lynched for killing a white woman that was carrying U.S. mail on a route to Davisboro, Georgia. He was lynched without any investigation by the people of Washington and Johnson counties. And myself and my wife was beat nearly to death because it was said that my boy did the killing. My wife was kept in jail for a long time, and I was kept in jail nearly two years. And it was said shortly after this happened that a white man killed the woman and gave my boy her auto that she carried the mail in to make it appear that my boy did the killing, since my boy knew no better than to let this man give him this auto. Please let me hear from you by return mail, as I would very much like to hear from you as quick as possible. Yours truly, Gaynor Atkins. You know, one of the things that just strikes me to the core when I hear Gaynor Atkins write to the NAACP seeking justice some four years after the killing of his of his boy is that these are real people. One of the things that gets a little bit lost in that Sacramento Union, in that white newspaper uh, account, is that this is a child who had parents and who had family who loved him, who also suffer because of this heinous act against not only him, but their entire family. Right. Lynching shatters families. Mm -hmm. It leaves them devastated. The families were never the same. Many were not safe staying in the community. They had to pick up and they had to leave quickly and they lost everything in the process. So not only are they devastated by what happened, but they lose their means of livelihood. They lose their homes. They lose their community. If we're looking for sources on how it affected family members, we may not find it immediately at the time a lynching occurred, but in the months or years afterwards, when they do things like Gaynor Atkins did, like write letters to try to get a degree of justice. What happens with family members is that it may take them some time, years even, to come to terms with it, like Gaynor Atkins. He couldn't hold a protest demonstration in Georgia at the time. He needed to get safe himself. And then he needed, he needed to come to terms with what happened to him and to his boy and to the rest of his family. But after that happens, he's able to try to fight for justice for his boy and for himself. There's no lynching victim that didn't have people, mm. mm -hmm. you know, that didn't have someone who loved them, someone who knew them, someone who was friends with them, someone who worked with them. And they all lived through that killing. And they all had their stories about what that killing meant to them, what it did to the family, what it meant to the community. Those stories are there in families. Some families pass them on and pass them down. Other families, they were too difficult to speak about. And so you've got a silence in some family stories, but you've got in other families a determination that people say their name, that people know who their loved ones were. So much so that... In places where we see the lynching photographs um, of Without Sanctuary exhibited across the country, where there are signed books, where there are books where visitors to the exhibit can write about their reflections 
write their reflections about what they see, a lot of families name their loved ones who were killed and the date and the place for those killings. And I think that's a testament to how those stories pass on. You know, the teachers who tune in to the podcast teach everything from kindergarten to college. When would you introduce the subject of lynching to students? I would wait until probably middle school. I would consider what's age appropriate. If we're starting with middle school, I think that middle schoolers could probably do best with newspaper reports, simple poems like Bertha Johnson's 1912, I Met a Blue-Eyed Girl. Um, they, could lo- they could look at some plays potentially and some of the artwork. By the time they get to high school, I would expect that they would be able to do more in-depth exercises, maybe look at the photos, maybe look at plays and short stories and personal letters and diaries, and even some of the political writing that we see African-American anti-lynching activists produce during this era. So what are some of the don'ts when teaching about lynching? And if we don't do those things, what should we do in their stead. Don't only use white sources, particularly white newspapers, as your source for understanding this violence. Compare white newspapers and black newspapers to help students see the difference in the coverage. What often happens with the white newspapers, what they do is act as stenographers for the mob. They essentially report in the newspaper what members of the mob or their friends and family reported to them without any real investigation. But black reporters are willing to go and do those investigations. They're willing to do that research to interview black and white people from the community and members of the victim's family. And you see that because Black reporters are more likely to have direct connections with members of the families or to experience lynchings, the way the lynching of African-Americans, the way that other Black people do, which is understand what could happen to them or to people they know. Are those reports from Black reporters available to us today? They are available to us today. The Chicago Defender was one of those papers that has been digitized, that's easily available, and that reported a lot on lynching. They had um, correspondent stations in the South who conducted their own investigations or relied on people who conducted investigations, and they reported that in the paper. So you see that with the Chicago Defender, the Washington Bee, the Richmond Planet, the Baltimore Afro-American, In a variety of papers, North and South, you see African-American detailed coverage of lynching. I also think that they should be looking as much as possible for Black people's representations of lynching, whether that is art, political writing, reporting, or fiction. There are too many sources that exist that cover African-Americans' understandings and experiences of this violence for that to not get covered in any lesson on lynching. Black artists, for example, who are representing lynching in their art. For example, Charles White's 1945 woodcut, A Hope for the Future. What we see in the woodcut is the mother holding a son, an infant baby boy, And outside the window is a tree in the distance with a small noose hanging from it. And so she has brought a child into the world and she has hope for the future. 
but she also knows about the outside world and what fate could befall her son. I think that work like that serves as a powerful indictment of lynching. It's an example of the resistance we see African Americans engaging in in response to it. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Bethany J. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources, as well as a full transcript, complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org podcasts. Now, let's return to Hassan's conversation with Kadata Williams. One of the primary sources that we have that documents lynchings are the picture postcards, the photographs that were taken at the scene of the crime during the moment. They actually focus on the mob. You might see the body of the lynching victim, but the photograph is centered on those who are participating in this heinous crime. They were taken for a glorification of what it is they're doing. And that's why they're not a source that should be used without a lot of thinking about the ethics of using them. I think you have to be careful of shifting the center of focus from Black people who were harmed by this violence Mm. to the perpetrators and their abettors. Mm. If you're using photographs of the mob, make sure that you're not allowing the story to end with them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If teachers use photographs, then they should only use photographs if they have the personal story of the family to teach right alongside the use of the photograph. So I acknowledge the value of photographs, but there are other sources that can communicate the same thing. Without doing the harm that the image can do. Absolutely. Bertha Johnson's I Met a Little Blue-Eyed Girl, what her poem does is tells the story of encountering a little girl who has a locket, and inside the locket she has the tooth of a man her father helped lynch. Mm. And what's really interesting about the story is just how cavalier the girl was. She's like, no, he wasn't the man who actually did it, but my family had fun that day. Wow. If there's photographs of the, the murderers at the scene of the crime, how is this allowed to happen without consequence? The only reason it happens without any consequence is because the majority of white people in the South and in America allowed it. Paul Lawrence Dunbar has this great piece called The Fourth of July and Race Outrages. And what he talks about is allowing these killings to occur, but still celebrating the 4th of July. It was published in the New York Times, July 10th, 1903. Sitting with closed lips over our own bloody deeds, we accomplished the fine irony of a protest to Russia. Contemplating with placid eyes the destruction of all the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution stood for, We celebrate the thing which our own action proclaims we do not believe. I think that most students believe that lynchings took place in this isolated landscape where there are no institutions available or around to stop it. And that's simply not true. All of the institutions that would be needed to handle an African-American accused of a crime were completely in place. 
There was law enforcement. There were the courts, etc. All of the institutions that we may think today would play a role in making sure lynching didn't happen, or if it did, it was punished, were there. But they were actually complicit, actively involved in the killing, or sitting complicitly silent, allowing it to occur. What would often happen is that a lynch mob would overtake a jail, and the jail would send to the governor requests for the militia to come in and help. And what the governor would say is, it's out of my control. It was too big for me to deal with. I can't control the will of the people. They would essentially throw up their hands and cry helplessness Mm. in the face of the will of the people. Now, that's not all governors, but it's a lot of governors, particularly in the southern states, who do that. White people in the community benefit from lynching in the sense that African-Americans are terrorized and less likely to fight against Jim Crow, are less likely to fight for equality. A lot of people are actually okay with it. They may not participate in the mob themselves, but they also may not play a role in stopping um, the mobs from forming or stopping the killers from getting away with the crimes. You know, you could have stopped with because white people in America were okay with it. <laughs> that was period, listen, full stop there. <laughs> listen, that's what gets my students all the time. Yep. You know, my students are always like, why didn't African-Americans fight back? I'm like, well, why didn't the white majority stop this from happening? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And that's a hard truth for my students to hear, but they hear it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's also the truth that people don't want them to hear. That's yeah. the, the whole a- the anti-CRT thing, madness right. and hysteria, right? Because right. it is an indictment and people don't like to be indicted. Exactly. But you have to point the finger at what, what's actually going on. Yeah, absolutely. One of the characteristics that defined life for African-Americans during the Jim Crow era was fear. And lynching certainly heightened that fear, not only for the immediate victims of it, those who lost their lives and their family members, but also for the African-American community writ large. Absolutely. Lynching is part of this larger freedom-denying enterprise that we see after the Civil War and after the emancipation of slavery. And violence becomes a way to roll back the gains of Reconstruction and limit their rights and their freedoms and their opportunities. African-Americans have to consider the fact that they or a member of their family might be lynched if they resist the new forces of subjugation that are emerging, like disfranchisement and segregation. But fear is, is something that is hard to wrap your mind around if you are not exposed to that particular kind of fear. How can we help our students make sense of the fear that African-Americans felt as a result of lynching? One of the ways we can do that is with sources where African-Americans document their fears. So Richard Wright, in his essay, The Ethics of Living Jim Crow, talks about a fight he has with white boys in the neighborhood. And he goes home to his mother for comfort, and she disciplines him, all the while yelling at him that he should never fight with white people. And what's clear in that story is how terrified she is of what could happen if a mob comes for him and for all of them. 
And so we have sources to help students understand a world they themselves did not live in and even to recognize their own privilege. But even as we do that, we shouldn't assume that our students don't know that kind of fear. Given the world we live in today, many of them may feel a similar kind of fear, but maybe for different reasons. Is there a relatable analogy when it comes to trying to understand fear and how it might operate when it comes to school shootings? I think that's a great example, especially given the drills they go through in order to prepare for a shooting in a school. But I also think, and it's more difficult to address in a classroom, that there are other examples in terms of violence that may exist in their own communities, violence that may exist in their own families. And even some students have probably had moments with police. So this is why I don't think that we should assume that all students don't know what that fear is like. At a certain point, we begin to see a decline in the numbers of lynchings. What explains that, and when do we begin to see it taper off? So we see the violence against African Americans really start to tick up in the 1880s, and it doesn't really start to come down until the 1930s. And some of the reasons for that are economic You've got some Northerners who are shy about investing in the South if lynch mobs can come through and just tear everything up. So that's one reason why the numbers start to go down. Another reason some of the numbers start to go down is because there are greater pushes from other parts of the U.S. for federal anti-lynching legislation, which would essentially work like this. If southern states failed to prosecute lynchers, then the federal government would step in and take over those prosecutions. And rather than deal with the federal government intervening, you start to see more southern states, more southern governors in particular, start to push back and demonstrate a greater willingness to put down mobs to even stop them from forming in the first place. One of the things that I like to encourage teachers to use are documentary films and film in general that take an informed look at different elements of the African-American experience. Do you have any films that you would recommend to teachers as entry points for conversation and discussion on this subject? I would recommend some of the short films produced by the EJI that tell the story of lynching. And those are easily available on their website. And they're short enough and they're detailed enough for teachers, even middle school teachers, to be able to use them in the classroom. And EJI, of course, is the Equal Justice Initiative um, out of Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which also is responsible for the Legacy Museum, uh, which covers the history of racial violence and racial terror from slavery to mass incarceration. They also constructed the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is a memorial to the victims of lynching in America. What are your thoughts on that form of memorialization of lynching? I think that form of remembrance of lynching is incredibly important. 
And the work of the EJI is critical for us understanding what happened. So not just pointing a finger at what happened, but understanding what happened and what it did to people. And I think that work starts by naming the names, by marking the historical record with a documentation of their names. The other things that the EJI is doing is erecting historic markers to make sure that local communities know what happened there. They're also holding memorial services at scenes of lynching and gathering soil at the site as a way to acknowledge what's happened and to try to deliver a degree of justice, however small, to the victims and their families today. One of the responses that you often hear to efforts to keep the knowledge of this aspect of America's past alive and to make sure that people don't forget it is that we should just let it go, right? Like it happened in the past, it's over. We should just move beyond it. How do you respond to those who say, just let it go? Well, I think the injustice of Jim Crow and the violence that undergirded that system is not something that we can just sort of snap our fingers and will away and wish away because we still live in the future created by that history. And we see that in examples all around us, whether it is the flash of terror a Black person has when they're pulled over by police for driving while Black, whether it is the January 6th event whether it is police shootings of unarmed African-Americans, whether it is the massacre at Mother Emanuel in 2015 in Charleston. This history is with us every day. And I don't think that there's any moving on from it unless we are willing to acknowledge it. So you can't do one without the other. What do you want students to take away from lessons on lynching? What I want students to know is that you don't get Jim Crow, you don't get disfranchisement without lynching and other forms of racist violence, including racialized rape, Mm. which is also happening at the time. African-Americans didn't just walk away from their rights and their protections and their privileges. They lived in the specter of being killed or having their loved ones killed. And that's what undergirded that system that sometimes we like to dismiss as where people sit on the bus or black kids wanting to be in a quote unquote white school. And so when people like to wax philosophical and think about the good old days, they need to know the reality of those good old days and how violent they actually were for black folks. Thank you so much for these insights on a topic that is so deeply troubling, but as you pointed out, is so necessary for us to understand. Thank you so much for having me. Kadada E. Williams is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University. She is the author of They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I. And she has a new book coming out called Saw Death Coming, Liberation, Trauma, and the Tragedy of Reconstruction. Dr. Williams is also the host of Seizing Freedom, a podcast from Vermont Public Radio. 
Next up, we talk with historian Kelly Carter Jackson about how African Americans responded to racial violence during the Jim Crow era. She begins her conversation with Hassan Kwame Jeffries by looking at how this legacy of resistance began before the Civil War. I am really honored to welcome Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson to the podcast. Kelly, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things that always strikes me when I introduce, in general terms, American history to my students is their belief at how calm and nice the past <laughs> was. Even mm. though they understand that slavery existed, they somehow still think that things were sort of peaceful and tranquil and kind of mm. everybody got along and that there certainly were moments of disruption and upheaval. Uh, you know, Civil War, yeah, that's five years. A couple hundred thousand <laughs> people died. But otherwise, everything else is pretty calm. Mm. You know, but the reality is somewhat different. <laughs> America historically has been a violent place. Is that, is that mm -hmm. safe to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There is not really a moment in our history in which we are not experiencing some sort of violent upheaval, unrest, backlash. I tell my students all the time, every course you take is is the history of violence or the study of violence. So if you're if you're taking, you know, the American history survey and you go from the slave trade to the Civil War, you're going from violence, uh, the violence of chattel slavery to the violence of the Civil War. If you're going from Reconstruction to the present, you're going from the violence of Reconstruction <laughs> to usually around 9-11 is when people stop their classes. Um, if you're thinking about teaching the war between the wars, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, I mean, the dots in the historical timeline are pinpoints to violence. We really can't escape it. How should we think about the role of violence as it relates to the color line in America? Mm, mm. I mean, violence is what propels us from moments to movements all throughout history. So when I think about the period I studied, the abolitionist movement, violence accelerated what becomes the Civil War. I think about the rise of Black political power and the rise of the KKK happening almost simultaneously during the Reconstruction period. And even when we think about the long freedom struggle or the Civil Rights Movement, so much of that movement is really about a response to violence. Violence at, you know, the voting booth, violence at lunch counters, violence in schools. When I look at the long freedom struggle, I see it as not a movement of nonviolence. I see it as a response to the violent oppression of white supremacy. What do we need to know about violence in American society during the antebellum era? Mm. So that's nothing but violence. <laughs> like, I don't I don't even know how to understand like the antebellum era without talking about violence. You know, people might talk about like, oh, technology or transportation or trains. And I'm like, no, it's all violence. It's all <laughs> violence. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and I think of this because when we think about 
the 1830s or even the 1840s and especially the 1850s. Um, this is a period that is rife with anti-abolitionist mob attacks in which black um, schools are destroyed, black businesses are destroyed, black people are lynched. Um, you have black printing presses and even white printing presses that are destroyed, um, that there are so many attacks against anyone who would try to promote the abolition of slavery. So black people have always had a long, rich history of defending themselves from the moment that they were enslaved in this country to defend not just their freedom, but the freedom of other black people. There's a long, rich heritage of of not just what I call like self-preservation or self-defense, but really sort of protective violence, this act of the black community to protect not just themselves, but kin, their community, strangers, from slave catchers, from masters, from people that would seek to do them harm. So William Lloyd Garrison was really seen as the head uh, of the abolitionist movement. Oftentimes we credit William Lloyd Garrison with having this approach of like moral suasion and nonviolence and turning the other cheek. And I say that if moral suasion is the house that William Lloyd Garrison built, black people are merely renters. Mm. They're not invested completely. Mm -hmm. They are taking up these ideas because they have a friend in Garrison because they find allyship in white abolitionists. But when push comes to shove, Black people shifted in their use of violence and their belief about how violence might be effective in overthrowing slavery. The way that they justified it was basically thinking about the institution of slavery itself. They would say things like, well, if slavery was created by violence and sustained through violence, it only made sense that slavery would be abolished by violence. One of those incidences is with the... Um, Christiana resistance in 1851 in which William and uh, Eliza Parker stand up against Edward Gorsuch, who is a slave um, owner and tries to retrieve his property that have run away to William um, Parker's house uh, to receive like refuge and shelter. And an altercation sort of breaks out over who is going to relinquish this property. And both men are sort of saying over my dead body. Um, and at the end of the day, that's exactly what you got. Edward Gorsuch as a dead body. He he died at the hands of enslaved people who refused to give him their humanity. The abolitionist community is in full support of William Parker and his wife. Frederick Douglass houses William Parker in his home and basically helps William Parker get out of Dodge to Canada until things can sort of cool on the case. He talks about not looking upon him as a murderer, but as a defender of liberty and justice. There's another incident of Lewis Hayden who kept two kegs of gunpowder inside his front door so that whenever slave catchers came to his home looking for, for freedom seekers, you know, Lewis Hayden would answer with a candlestick and sort of say, you can leave in peace or you can leave in pieces and then gesture to the two kegs of, of gunpowder. And no one was willing to call his bluff. I mean, he was serious about protecting Black men and women that came to him uh, for refuge. 
And there are other stories as well of just enslaved people who armed themselves, who stole their their masters, you know, um, pistols or, or, or rifles or horses or used whatever they could to get free and then made good on the promise of, of defending themselves to the point of death. And so I think of John Anderson, who basically warned a slave catcher, hey, if you keep coming for me, I'm going to kill you. And the man keeps pursuing him and keeps pursuing him. And so John Anderson is telling this story before a mixed crowd and basically says, listen, he kept coming for me, so I killed him. And the audience erupts in applause and says, you did right. And they're, you know, like saying bravo. And it just, it represents the shift that society had and how they perceived black people who were trying to obtain their freedom. It was something incredible if you could sort of cause violence to the very system that was violating you. And so not only did they support it, but they also saw that kind of response as godly, as natural, but also as God ordained. And that's, I think, where we start to see the real shift in the 1850s is that there's so much more support among the public for violent response because the South is so violent these violent tensions erupt into what becomes a civil war. And even when the system of slavery is abolished, there are still attempts made by former slaveholders to violently keep Black people tethered to the land, tethered to the plantation, tethered to that kind of backbreaking work with very little pay, if any pay at all. And we see as Black people start to progress, politically speaking, gaining the vote and citizenship and elected offices, there's an intense backlash to that. And you see more and more instances of riots, of unrest, of mass murders um, that take place all across the country. I believe it was Robert Smalls, who is a Black elected official who does a study and finds that in maybe a 20 or 30 year period, about 47,000 Black people are killed. I mean, that just... Those numbers are staggering to me. And those numbers are reflective of Black people who were trying to assert their freedom and um, better themselves and improve their lives. And they find themselves the target of the Klan and the target of um, white men and women who don't want to um, be equal with them. Did that come as a surprise to Northern Republicans, to Abraham Lincoln, that violence would follow the mm. end of the hostilities? There's a, a quote um, that I stumbled upon that Abraham Lincoln gave that I think is so powerful. He's it's talking after the abolition of slavery. And he says, quote, in reference to you colored people, let me say God has made you free. Although you have been deprived of your God-given rights by your so-called masters, you are now so free as I am. And if those that claim to be your superiors do not know that you are free, take the sword and the bayonet and tell them who you are. For God created all men, giving each of them the same rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's just so powerful to me because Lincoln is one saying, First, let me say God made you free, contrary to popular belief of me being the great <laughs> emancipator. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, like, um, you know, you enforce your freedom. Score one for Abe. 
Uh, uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, Lincoln, Lincoln's, you know, he's complicated. He's complicated. Exactly. But for that, you know, I, I appreciate his support of them using force and even mm. violent force to maintain their, their freedom, their citizenship even. Yeah. For that, we can tip the tall cap. Yeah, uh, we sure Abe can. <laughs> but now, black folk on the ground, they didn't need mm. to hear from Abe to embrace the idea that, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to have to keep fighting for this. What are some examples from the Reconstruction, the post-Reconstruction mm-hmm. period, uh, the, the, the Jim Crow era of mm-hmm. black people responding to the violence that is being used to oppress? Mm. Well, I think that, one, we have to remember that black soldiers who fought in the Civil War, they go home armed. You know, they don't turn in <laughs> their weapons mm. when they go back home. They keep those guns. They keep those bayonets to protect and to preserve the freedom that they just fought for. So black people have had a long history of arms, even before the Civil War. During the abolitionist movement, they are forming these black self-protection societies. They're black communities and sometimes with white allies that come together to defend themselves. Those communities are still defending themselves after the Civil War and during Reconstruction and even towards the turn of the 20th century because the riots um, and the mob attacks that are taking place, the white terrorism that's taking place is so rampant. Um, And I found some really just incredible examples of how black people have, you know, really mobilized their community to protect one another. There's one in which a predominantly black mob lynches a white man. First of all, let me just say, when I read about this, I was dumbfounded because Mm. every single lynching that you read about in the late 19th, early 20th century period is about a black man. But in this case, in central South Carolina in 1887, a man by the name of Mance Waldrop was lynched by a predominantly black mob because he had sexually assaulted and murdered a 13-year-old girl, black girl, by the name of Lula Sherman. And the community was just not going to stand for that kind of assault, for that kind of egregious murder. And they were going to stand up for their for their daughters. And the black men come together. They find out where uh, Waldrop is being um, held. Um, and when the sheriff gets made aware of the fact that the black community wants to seek revenge on him, they try to get him out of town. And on the way of getting him out of town, his buggy gets uh, accosted by this group of black men. And they take him out to the woods and they lynch him. What's incredible to me is is two things. One, the fact that they're able to do this, but also the fact that after it's happened, you would think, oh, well, all hell is going to break loose. The whole black community is now going to get, you know, destroyed. That doesn't happen. The men who were largely responsible for the lynching, you know, they get acquitted. <laughs> and one, one gets pardoned by the governor of South Carolina um, under the rationale that, well, this is what white men do when they suspect black men of committing similar crimes. So I guess an eye for an eye, you know, and it's, it's, it's insane. This whole moment, this whole episode is insane. But I do think that in some ways, white people are put on notice that, 
don't think that black people won't retaliate. Don't think that they won't respond to violence with violence. Um, and I think it's a, it's an, a moment that is powerful. It's maybe not a moment that is predominant, you know, that, that happens over and over again. But I think we only need to see a few examples of black people pushing back to at least sort of arrest or curb the violence that takes place in that specific location. So maybe not wholesale, but maybe for that town, you know, it starts to cool down a little bit when black white people realize that their lives are also at risk for this behavior. What is developing in my mind as I, as I hear you walk us through this history is that protective violence, defensive violence is really ever present coming out of the institution of slavery and running through reconstruction and the redemption mm -hmm. period as a as a necessary tool in order to survive. I'm wondering, once we reach the early 20th century, mm -hmm. we see these these race wars, um, not just merely riots, but whites attempting to literally destroy black communities. And of course, yeah. Red Summer, uh, the summer mm -hmm. of 1919, where blood flows in the streets of cities across the country. Do we see in those instances an extension of that willingness of black folk to defend themselves? Or is it just mm -hmm. like, hey, we got to duck and cover right now? Oftentimes, we only show one side of the story, which is we show black communities being destroyed or we show black people being terrorized, but we never show the resistance. Even in Tulsa, black people were armed and they were fighting back. But the problem is, is that black people are one, almost always outgunned, outmanned, you know, outnumbered. You know, it's not a fair fight. It's never a fair fight. A lot of these riots, and really they're not, they're not riots. It's, it's racial terrorism that's being enacted on black communities. I think riot makes it a little superficial, um, or, or chaotic, and it's not. Uh, most of this violence is coordinated. It is planned. It is strategic. They know who they're targeting and why. Certain people that are lynched or or whose businesses are destroyed, those are some of the most prosperous people, the wealthiest Black people who get targeted. Oftentimes, we think about lynchings of Black people as a response to like sexual assault and to rape. But Ida B. Wells has talked about how, no, 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 actually, most of these attacks are about economic competitiveness, about successful Black people, about Black landowners that have gotten too big or somehow become a threat to white supremacy. Tulsa, for example, or even um, St. Louis or Elaine, Arkansas. These are prosperous Black enclaves. Maybe not prosperous in the way that we think of like white wealth, but certainly well-to-do Black communities that have to be on guard um, from these white mob attacks because their success um, is a threat to the social order. Where do you think the notion that black folk somehow have always defaulted to nonviolence mm. comes from? Mm. White supremacy. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I say I say that very carefully, but very seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
let me just say this. I think there's legitimacy to nonviolence. I think there's utility to nonviolence. But I also think that there are ways that people have used nonviolence to mute the, the protest of black people, to curb their response to oppression. I think that sometimes we have these romanticized ideas about black people sort of sacrificing their their bodies mm. or their lives or laying down, you know, on the altar of equality. And while that makes for a very romantic story, I just don't think that that fits with how black people actually felt about um, the violence that they were facing at the time. Black people are fighting back. That is the standard. That is the mm, norm. Mm. Um, and when we see nonviolence, it's actually more of an anomaly. We've made the anomaly the only story. Author Chimamada Adichie says that the single story can be very dangerous um, because it shuts out other ideas and other responses that have been effective in combating white supremacy. You know, I think the trope of all black folk are nonviolent except the mm -hmm. violent ones. Mm -hmm. who are often in the wrong, does the political work of delegitimizing mm -hmm. black responses to white supremacy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there we have a a clear double standard when it comes to protest, especially violent or forceful protests in this country, in which white people from the Boston Tea Party can, mm. can sort of like destroy property, you know, uh, run amok, um, go crazy, go buck wild, can, you know, throw Molotov cocktails, can bomb cities, you know, um, we talk about this a lot in my, my own podcast about the sort of terroristic acts that white people have taken, especially if you think about, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, dropping bombs on mm. black communities. Um, or, you know, if you want to take it to contemporary um, standpoint and think of like, you know, armed white men and women at state capital in Michigan or mm. January 6th, even equally important, um, white people have used violence and force in ways that black people could never, could never do. We can make some sort of exception or excuse or rationale for understanding white violence in the way that it plays out. Even if you think about football games, oh, they're just boys being boys. Oh, they're just happy their team won. Like we really find ways to, to excuse that kind of behavior. And yet when black people are doing things that are not even violent, we sort of lose our, our minds. And I think the perfect example of that is like Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee. You know, he's not setting the flag on fire or tearing up the flag or doing a middle finger to the flag. But we see his gesture of kneeling, a posture that's common with prayer or common with the proposal, as incredibly violent to our patriotism. And I think part of the problem in America is that we don't know how to deal with Black protest, whether it's violent or nonviolent. We don't know how to reconcile it because we're unwilling to do the work of relinquishing the power that suppresses Black people. You know, you raised the example of Colin Kaepernick, and I think that's a great example of the ways in which whiteness will turn even Black nonviolence violent. Mm -hmm. In yes. your own mind, right? Yes. Like, you understand what's happening, right? It's not violence. No, that's violence. Yes. Right? Oh, come on. Um, and it's hard trying to have conversations with people, calm conversations about 
the long history of athletes in protest. I mean, mm-hmm, you can go mm-hmm. back to the 68 Olympics. You can look at Wilma Rudolph. Like there are, there are lots of athletes who have used in their, used their position and power to, to make a statement about something. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's just an intense double standard about how violence gets used. You know, one of the excuses that we tell ourselves sometimes when we don't want to confront this history is that, you know, it's too difficult to talk about violence. And yet we will talk about the Civil War. We mm-hmm. will teach World War One. We will teach mm-hmm. Vietnam. We will teach the American Revolution. <laughs> That's all we do. As you said at the yeah. top of the interview, all we're doing is talking about violence. To all our classes. <laughs> exactly. So it's not that we don't mm. want to talk about it. We don't mm. want to talk about this. We don't want to mm. talk about and teach these specific instances, the ways mm. in which violence is used to control, to oppress, mm-hmm. to exploit, uh, and the ways in which violence is sometimes used by necessity uh, mm-hmm. to push back. Yes. I definitely think that the reason we sort of sidestep violence is because if you have that deep conversation, then you have to talk about culpability. You have to talk about complicity. You have to talk about the ways that white supremacy has worked, has caused harm, and also has benefited and given advantage to white communities. We don't mind talking about violence in terms of like war or something that we, you know, glorify if we think it's for a good cause or if we're talking about World War II and killing Nazis. We don't really have a problem talking about that. But when you start talking about violence that has caused harm that white people in some way have benefited from, then that's a different conversation. Um, and now we're not talking about violence. Now we're talking about power and who has it and who wields it. Um, and so, you know, I actually don't think that we are that uncomfortable with violence. I think we are incredibly uncomfortable with power because now I have to justify why I live where I live, have what I have, why I do what I do. Now I have to explain things that we can dismiss if we're just talking about violence, because violence is bad. Does that make Mm, sense? It does. It does. Violence as an assertion of power, trying to gain power, trying to retain power. For black folk, trying to seize power back, uh, power over their own bodies, communities, and culture. Yeah. The instance that I talked about of the black community that lynches the white man, um, you know, they don't follow up and go into the white community and and firebomb houses and set homes on fire and, you know, destroy white schools. And it's not about destruction for destruction's sake or I'm going to destroy you. Like, that's not what their violence is. is about. And I almost kind of feel like we need another word to describe mm-hmm. violence as a response to white people's violence or oppression. Yeah. If you're using violence to arrest violence, I don't even know that that's violence, you know? You're right. We we don't have we don't have the language. Mm-hmm. We don't have the language for it. And and it strikes me too that when you look at this long history, one of the things that has always struck me with the actions of white people 
speaking broadly and generally here, the actions mm-hmm. of segregationists, the actions of enslavers mm-hmm. and the like, there's always been this fear that if they relinquish their power, if somehow they shared power to make decisions uh, in society, that mm-hmm. black folk would treat white folk like white folk have treated black folk. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And if, if it's always been predicated on violence, then God forbid, right? We can't let black people be free because we know what we've done to them. But there's no, there's no precedent for that. None. You've never heard of a black person going into a white church and shooting up white parishioners. You've never heard of a black person setting a bomb in a, in a white church and killing four little white girls. You've never heard of white people going into a black restaurant and having food thrown at them or drinks poured on top of them. You've never heard of that because it just doesn't happen. The Quentin Tarantino movie has never happened. Right. Where black yeah. folk just unleash hell <laughs> on white folk, right? Never. So like, y'all can just chill. It ain't going to happen. That's not <laughs> what we're about. But but if you've only understood power through violence, mm-hmm. I truly believe that you can't think of another way. No. So there's this assumption that power exercised over you cannot be done in a democratic way, cannot be done in a way that is something is, is, is other than violent. And, yeah. and and that to me serves then as this sort of rationalization, this justification mm-hmm. for the for refusing to share power equitably, for refusing to treat other people humanely. It's capitalism, right? So my mm. a lot of my students, you know, they can't think outside of capitalism because somebody's gotta be on the bottom. Somebody's yeah. gotta lose. Somebody somebody gotta do the work. <laughs> somebody <laughs> has somebody has to occupy these spaces and they can't imagine a world that is not based on either scarcity or supremacy. But you know, again, it's just difficult to have these conversations when we're not honest about the devastation of white supremacy. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, resistance, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. Are there primary sources that you would recommend teachers use to facilitate these discussions? Sure. There is there's a primary source uh, book that I like to use. Um, it's edited by um, Quintart Taylor. It's called From Timbuktu to Katrina. And there's a volume one and a volume two. I, I predominantly use the volume, uh, the first volume. But there are a lot of passages of either letters or speeches or eyewitness accounts um, that I think are really useful. And I think they're useful, one, because they're they're short enough for, for students to sort of read them and, and grapple with them. But also they just give so much information about um, how people understood the moments that they were living in. So one example I use is of, of Frederick Douglass. He um, is pinning an op-ed in his own newspaper, the Douglass Monthly. 
the title of the the op-ed is uh, Men of Color to Arms. And he is encouraging them to enlist in the um to enlist in the army, to fight for freedom. He basically says, this is our fight. This is our war. White people won't even respect us unless we stand up for ourselves. Um, And he starts recruiting for the Massachusetts uh, regiments, the 54th and the 55th uh, all black regiments. But it's just such a wonderful a way of seeing how Frederick Douglass uses his voice to galvanize black men to fight and to fight for their own freedom and the freedom of others if they themselves are free. Um, I also like to use the, um, there is a great speech by Lucy Parsons called I'm an Anarchist. And it's just really powerful because she really, she takes the stigma away from thinking of anarchists as, as a, violence seeking and people that just want to make bombs and throw them. And she's like, no, we, we want equality. We want equal humanity. We want equal treatment under the law. And she starts to lay out like everything that they want and that they're working for. And I think that we don't talk about, well, what do white people want? What are they trying to preserve? Oh, their own supremacy, their own dominance. Well, what do black people want? Well, what are they fighting for? What are they using violence for? What's at the heart of it? Oh, they want their kids to go to school or, oh, they want, you know, to to be able to vote. You know, like these are things that I think she really teases out in that speech. Um, and then there's another one. Jack Treese, who's actually a teenager, and he talks about being attacked um, by three white men and what he did to fight them off, even though he wasn't that successful. Some of the sources that I really like to use a lot is the black press to use black newspapers. Um, I often think that we get in the practice of reading a lot of white publications and and. Oftentimes, black voices are just left out of those narratives completely. There's, they're not just their voices, but their stories um, in totality are left out of the narrative. And there's a lot of really good databases that you can go to now that have been digitalized with these black newspapers so that you can get, you know, little clippings or snippets of them. Oh, also, you know what I'm finding um, that's also really useful are political cartoons and illustrations, sometimes advertisements, um, can tell you a lot about the moment. Um, and I know there are databases that have them too, where you can get a lot of, um, like the illustrations and the cartoons, especially in like the late 19th century. They're super racist, super like minstrelsy, um, but also really useful and letting students understand how black people were being depicted visually. And then I would say memoirs are really useful. Sometimes, though, you kind of have to tease out a biography and and a memoir a little bit because they can be very, you know, self-indulgent. And so, you know, about how a certain person sees themselves. But I I do think that they are, are useful. Frederick Douglass writes like three different narratives. So all of those are like really, really helpful. I also like using Harriet Jacobs because she's the first woman to write an enslaved um, narrative that I think is really good. I like looking at the work of Ida B. Wells um, and the early publications that she has gives a lot of truth and light on what's happening in the moment. Mary Church Terrell would be good. Who's the other one? I'm forgetting. Oh, what's her name? It's... um. Anna Julia Cooper is another one. 
Robert Smalls also. He was an informally enslaved person, later becomes an elected official, um, has a lot to say about the moment in which he's living and which he's experienced. When we think about teaching this in the classroom, how do we avoid traumatizing students, mm. and particularly students of color? Mm. Mm. Well, for one... I don't, um, I don't show a lot of images and, uh, I know, I, I just remember being in a classroom and, um, a, a fellow professor was talking about lynchings and he was showing a lot of images and, and then he got lost in his point and he just left the PowerPoint slide on this lynching as he went on to talk about, you know, other things. I'm like, you can't just leave that up there. Mm. You can't just leave that there and meander on to another point. You can't forget that it's up there. So I'm always careful about what I'm showing. I also think that we have to show that Black people are fighting back. So one of the things I like to ask my students when we're talking about violence is what is the appropriate response? How should oppressed people respond to their oppression? And what do you do when you don't have the vote? What do you do when you don't have citizenship? What do you do when you're not even really considered a human being? What is the appropriate or reasonable response? I think that oftentimes when we think about slavery, it's very easy for us to come to the conclusion of violence because we see slavery is so violent. But I think having these conversations get more difficult as we move into the 20th century because we can say, well, black people have citizenship and black people have the vote, kind of. So then how should they respond to their oppression or their exploitation or the violence that they experience? And even in a current moment that we live in right now, if we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, what is an appropriate response? Is kneeling at the flag too radical? Or is kneeling during a football game simply not enough? How do we come up with a strategy, a method that effectively brings about structural, sustainable change, not just symbolic, but real systemic change that allows us to create the world or, or progress the world to, to something that we want to all live in and can all benefit from. Um, these are not easy questions, but it's definitely worth getting students to grapple with these big ideas. Why do you think we should study this history and how does it help us make sense of the moment in which we live? Mm. You know, until I came to grips with my grandmother and the fact that she kept a gun in her nightstand, this history, it had political meaning for me, but not personal meaning. And that's when I realized that like, you know, this is this is not far removed from us. You know, my grandmother doesn't feel far away from me. And if we don't have hard conversations about the whys and the hows and even the wheres, the locality of it, um, 
we will find ourselves repeating these very same atrocities. When I think about what happened on January 6th and how violent that was, I realized that when I looked at that mob and I looked at these people who were who were storming the Capitol with Confederate flags, um, with, with relics of the past to, to explain their own political grievances. Um, it just made me want to double down even more on getting the message out to students and really anyone will hear it on why this matters. Because if we don't get this, if we don't get why violence propels us from moment to movement, from war to war. We're just going to keep going along on this like treadmill. I'm tired of feeling like movements, we get all this momentum and hype around it, but we don't really go anywhere. I want to go somewhere. Yeah, I like that. So we've been talking a lot about violence and African-Americans as the victims of violence, but then also African-Americans having to resort to violence to preserve their lives, to to preserve their families and communities and the like. My experience in the classroom is we can't just talk about the hardships and the horrors. Uh, We also have to talk about the ways in which African-Americans were able to maintain their humanity through love, through joy, through friendship. Mm. You know, I stumbled upon um, this quote by Zora Neale Hurston, and she's saying this in 1928. She says, I am not tragically colored. There is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul, nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. I do not belong to the sobbing school of Negrohood who hold that nature somehow is giving them a low down, dirty deal and whose feelings are all about it. No, I do not weep at the world. I'm too busy sharpening my oyster knife. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I love it. (laughs) And I love it because, you know, she's like white supremacy is not the totality of who I am or who I want to be or where I'm going. I have other things to do. It kind of goes along the veins of like Toni Morrison, where she talks about racism being a distraction, um, distracting you from the things that you want to do, that you're constantly having to prove these myths to be a lie. Um, and that what would the world look like if we could just sort of be and exist without having to combat a myth or a lie or, or violence or domination or exploitation? I try to get my students to think outside of this lens of like violence and domination and subordination to get people to think about blackness in ways that are void of whiteness. <laughs> like, and I think, I think that's important because sometimes we get so caught up in thinking about racism that we don't understand a black identity outside of whiteness, um, that we use so much of whiteness to explain blackness. And so, you know, a lot of my syllabus has actually been about changing some of the things that we read to include things that don't really have anything to do with white people. <laughs> like, and that's not as a way of like sort of, you know, trying to um, 
you know, throw away white people or not have those discussions. But I want us, I want my students to understand, like, what does it mean to be black, to think about a certain aspect or a recipe or dance or song or a poem or just a simple experience doing hair or sharing a meal that just promotes fellowship and joy and laughter and kinship. I want my students to have a balanced understanding of blackness that doesn't just operate from a place of terrorism. Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Kelly Carter Jackson is an associate professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. She is the author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, and the co-host of the Radiotopia podcast, This Day in Esoteric Political History. Dr. Carter Jackson is also the historian in residence at the Museum of African American History in Boston. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Williams and Dr. Carter Jackson for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Bethany J, Professor of History at Salem State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History.